Amen. Thank you. I wanted to share a verse. It's First uh, John four four. Uh, it says, "You do, you dear children, are from God and have overcome them, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world." I know a lot of people uh, use that verse in the present tense, and we use it as something to encourage us to overcome current trials. But six years ago, before I came to Jesus, there were things in my past that I felt were too great for me to overcome. There were issues that I had tried to, to change, things I had tried to change about myself um, that I couldn't. I had tried so many times, and it just felt like I kept failing. And I felt Jesus calling me to give my life to him, and that he would give me victory in those areas. And when I did, I saw that transformation happen that, that I couldn't bring about on my own. And that was such a sign for me that, that Jesus is real and that we can stand on his word. And uh, today, I just encourage you, whether you're a new believer, um, if you don't know Jesus and there's things that are holding you back, or if there are things that you've been a Christian for a long time, maybe things that happened last night, things that happened in your childhood that, that keep holding you back, to stand on this word and to know that you right now in Jesus are stronger than the old you before you were in Jesus. There's nothing in your past that's going to hold you back because we have victory in Jesus Christ. So let me just pray for us right now before we start to worship. God, I thank you, Lord, for your freedom. God, I thank you for the transformation that you can bring in our lives that we can't bring on our own, Lord. I pray that, God, we will be uh, just living in your joy and your peace, Lord, and we'd be uh, quick, Lord, to, to lead others to that same joy and peace. I pray that you be glorified in our lives, Lord, and everything that we say and do, Lord. You receive all the glory and praise. Amen. Singing, I would give it. We're giving it all away, away. Sing it out. We're giving it all to go your way. We're giving it all away, away. We're giving it all to go your way. In the way we're singing. Father, there is freedom, there is hope in the name that is Jesus. Lay your light down, give it all now. We have found in the love of the Savior, we've come alive in you. Set free to show the truth, this our lives will never be the same. We're giving it all away. Clap your hands. We'll see, we are sold out. We are sold out to your calling. Everything that we are for your glory. We take our hearts now, tell it all now. Let our lives shine the light like the morning. We've come alive in you. 
set free to show the truth. Your soft eyes will never be the same. Come on, sing it out. Giving it all away. Giving it all to go your way. We're giving, we're giving it all away. Yeah, giving it all to go your way. Come on, clap your hands. Sing a roll back. Roll back the curtains from our eyes. And now we can see you. Show us the way to friend life. We offer our lives to bring you faith. Yes, we're caught in your freedom. We're caught in your freedom. Go sing it again. We're giving it all away. We're giving it all to go Oh, come on, sing it louder. We're giving it all away. We're giving it all to go away. And the way we're singing. The way we sing it. Come on, give me some praise today. Hallelujah. Praise you, God. Come on. We love you, Lord. We sing to you this morning. So worthy, God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, in an attitude of surrender and praise, would you lift your hands with me this morning? Come on, and we just repeat after me, say, Jesus. Come on, say, Jesus. I want all that you have for me. Come on, I want all that you have for me. Hallelujah, come on, Jesus. We want it all, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Father. We honor you, God. We take this time to give you praise and glory, adoration, God, from our hearts, God, from our hearts. Oh, let a song arise from our hearts. Let a song arise, oh, God, from the history, from the experience that we've had with you, God, of your faithfulness, of your love. While yet we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let a song arise from your heart this morning of his goodness, of his grace, of his love, of his compassion, of his fire. Our God is a consuming fire. Consume us, Lord, this morning. Consume us, God, with your fire. Holy Spirit of God, move in power in this time upon every person, upon your church, upon your people, upon the young, upon the old, God, upon parents upon children, God, upon businessmen, upon workers, God, upon students, come and move in power, Holy Spirit, we desire, we desire a touch from heaven this morning, we desire a touch from heaven this morning, come on church, as we get to lift your prayers, as we declare, 
as we profess we desire a touch from heaven this morning hallelujah
embrace of the one that I love. Long to stay in your presence. Long to look on the face of the one that I love. Oh, love you, Lord. up your voice as we sing show me your glory come on let's just begin to pray right now come on let's just begin to intercede come on we know that when the glory of the Lord comes come on things change come on and so right now God we ask for your glory to come down on this church upon your people Lord God we ask oh God that you would empower us we ask that your glory would come over this city over our neighborhoods over our family 
Come on, church, just begin to lift up where you want to see the glory of the Lord fall. Come on. Hallelujah. Let your glory fall. Let your glory fall. Let your glory fall. Let your glory, Lord. Let your glory, Lord. Your glory. towards love. Oh, Jesus. Come on, if you feel led of the Lord this morning to share a word, come on with the body. Let me do so at this time.
Many are called and few are chosen. Who's willing to deny themselves and say, God, you can use me. Who's willing to answer the call this morning to be a disciple of Christ, uncompromised in word and speech and deed. Who's ready to go and be the mouthpiece of the Lord. Come on. Jesus. Jesus. Come on. Come on, I just feel the Holy Spirit right now just working on people's hearts right now. It's all or nothing he's saying. It's all or nothing he's saying. Come on. We're going to open up this altar right now. And for those who are saying, it's all or nothing, God, I want you to meet me up here at this altar. Come on. It's all or nothing, God. Come on. It's all or nothing, God. You can use me. Who's going to answer the call this morning? Come meet us up here at this altar. Jesus, it's all or nothing, God. Oh, God. Oh, Lord, forgive us for looking to the right or to the left. We're looking at our possessions, God, and saying it's worth more. God, we're coming to you. Come on. Who's willing to answer the call this morning? Oh, we say, Lord, show us your glory here this morning, God. We respond to you, Jesus. Come on. We respond to you. Now, come on, saints. Just begin to lift your voice. And say, I'll go, I'll go, I'll go, wherever you want me, Lord, I'll go. anointing over your people, oh God. A prophetic anointing, God, to move in boldness, Holy Spirit. Come on, just receive it of the Lord. Come on, just say, Lord, use me, God. Here I am. Here I am. Do you know that the prophet Samuel, he heard the voice of God at a young age. He heard God call his name. But when he went back, and the man of God told him, go back and say, here I am. God was able to speak, and that's our response here this morning. Here I am. Here we are, Lord. Here I am. Come on. Here we are. Here we are, your church, God. Here we are.
Hallelujah. Come on, God is in this room and he's doing something new this morning. His word says that if you remain in him, he will remain in you. Apart from him, you can do nothing. God has placed dreams in this room, visions, things to advance his kingdom, to reach out to the lost. But apart from him, none of those will pass. Apart from him, if you're not remaining in him, they're just dreams. Come on, those dreams need to come into reality this morning. Those dreams need to come to pass because souls are waiting for those dreams to come to pass. God is raising up an army. This is a room full of leaders. God has called you and me to be leaders in this world. Come on, won't you guys raise up your hands with me this morning? And surrender to God. Come on, with your own words, let him know, I will remain in you, God. No matter what happens, I will remain in you. No matter where we are financially, we will remain in you, dear God. Whether we're set, dear God, and we have it all together, or Father, we're struggling in our finances, dear God, that will not dictate our faithfulness to you. God, wherever we are in our families, and our marriages, dear God, we're going to remain in you, dear God. We're not going to move. We're going to stand firm on you. Come on, declare that this morning. No matter what your emotions tell you, you're going to remain in him. God, we declare today to remain in you. Fire of God! Fire of God, fire of God, fall on your people. Fire of God. Oh, we give you glory. We give you glory this morning. Oh, we serve the living God. We don't serve a God that's deaf or mute. We serve the living God. We serve a God that is not far away, but he is so close to us. Hallelujah. Come on. Come on. A few more minutes. Come on. Just declare your faithfulness to him. Oh, we serve a good God. We serve a faithful God. Hallelujah. culture we want to see you move let your glory be known throughout the land dear God let your glory be known throughout Chicago throughout the nations dear God 
Hallelujah. God, do a mighty thing. Let your glory be known through this people in this room, dear God. Father, let the world know, dear God, that you are with us, dear God. That you walk with us. That you are the living God. That there is no other one but you, Jesus. Let your glory be known in such a time, dear God, in our culture where you are denied and pushed away, dear God. Let your glory be known. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ, come on, let's give him some praise. Come on, worship him, praise him. God, you are good. You are good, God. Hallelujah. I'm going to ask that you guys to please make your way back to your seats. Oh, God is good, amen. He is doing a new thing. Come on, you believe that? Welcome to Metro Praise. My name is Pastor Griselda, and I want to take this time to dismiss any children that are here. Everybody else, please open up your Bibles to 1 John 4.10. And I want to share with you this morning the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I want to speak to you about love. Somebody say love. God's love is amazing. You guys ever felt God's love? You've ever experienced it, seen it in your life? His love is unconditional. His love is self-sacrificing. Even while we were sinners, he still loved us, right? Because Christ died for us. He died for the forgiveness of our sin. That's love. To do something for someone else even though they don't deserve it, that's love. Sometimes we can't even understand his love. Why he would choose to forgive liars and murderers and cheaters and idolaters slanders and gossips why god almighty would choose to forgive such people we might never understand that's the awesomeness of our god and today in first john 4 10 it says this is love not that we loved god but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins Atoning means to repair, to mend. Our sins needed to be forgiven, needed to be handled. There's consequences to sin, and Jesus Christ took the consequence, the punishment for our sins. That those who put their faith in him might come under that atonement and receive eternal life. The Bible says that, that every man is appointed to die, right? None of us are going to escape death. We'll all come face to face with this living God, whether you put your faith in that today or not. But the Bible says that you can have forgiveness of your sins and receive eternal life. You are here today for a reason, and God is knocking at the door of your heart. The Bible says he desires none to perish, and all of our excuses and all of our reasons on why we don't want to serve God will not stand a chance before the living God. The Bible says it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The God who knows our inner thoughts, the God who, can, who knows our mind and knows every thought before it comes out of your mouth. That's the God that we will come face to face with. The God who knows what happens behind closed doors. The God who knows the truth about each and every one of us. That's the God that we will face, a holy God. And there's forgiveness because this holy God loves us. 
And he knows each and every one of us by name. He's extending his love to us and his kindness, which leads us to repentance. Today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we beckon you to come. We plead with you to come because we know that God is calling your name. We're going to have some leaders standing right over here. And if you're saying, that's me, I want to give my life to Jesus, go pray with them, talk with them, and they will help you. They will help you get mentored and grow in, in this walk with Christ. Amen? Please stand to your feet as we get ready to pray. Hallelujah. Lord, you're, you're doing something in this room, dear God. Father, you are, you are serious. Some people are messing around and playing with your grace, dear God, and it's not okay. Father, your grace is not like a dirty rag, dear God, to wipe away the sin, dear God. It's, it's trampling on the blood of Jesus is what it is, dear God. And I pray for people to settle down, to, that they would stand firm in your words, dear God, that they would love you and obey your commands. Father, help us in this room live for you. And those who are, who are dedicating their life to you on this day, I pray that disciples would arise out of them. Father, men and women of God who do not compromise, dear God, but stand for righteousness in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Right now we're going to do our confession of faith. If you would like a copy of this, please raise your hand. This is our Christian worldview. These statements that we are about to receive, that we're about to recite, are found in the Bible. And we believe that these statements apply to us and to the rest of the world. So we're going to recite this now on the count of three. One, two, three. I believe in one God and creator who is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father who so loved the world. The Son who purchased my salvation in his death, burial, and resurrection. And the Holy Spirit who makes me new and abides in me forever. I believe in the perfect Holy Bible that reveals God's purposes and plans for my life. I believe in the second coming of Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. I believe in the eternal reward of believers in Jesus and the eternal punishment for all unbelievers in Jesus. I believe in the United Church of Jesus Christ built upon apostles and prophets, elders and deacons in which the gates of hell shall not prevail. I believe in the salvation for all mankind. It is by faith alone, in Christ alone, by God's grace alone, and for the gl glory of God alone. Amen. Come on, give him some praise. Take the next couple of minutes to fellowship. Greet one another, and if you need prayer, our leaders are there for you. Thank you.
high five as you make your way back here. Who's glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning? Come on. God is good. It's wonderful to gather together with brothers and sisters in the Lord. We put God first when we gather together in this place. Amen. Welcome to Metro Cities International. My name is Nancy Wyrostek. I'm one of the apostolic elders here, and we welcome you. If this is your first time here, we welcome all the first-time visitors. If you could fill out the little card, put it in the drop box. If you didn't receive one of these at the doors, our ushers will get this to you. Our services here are every Sunday at 10 a.m. And then we have our other service for the teenagers every Friday at 7 p.m. Elevate. Awesome. So if you know any teenagers, invite them on for Friday. Those are our two services. And we just have an announcement today for our Christmas service, which is two weeks away on the 22nd. Wise men still seek him. Who's wise in this place? Come on. So Sunday, December 22nd at 10 a.m., it's our special Christmas service with a children's presentation. So you don't want to miss it. Invite your friends, invite your family, especially the ones that don't know Jesus. Let's use this as a, an opportunity to preach the gospel to those that need him. Amen. Especially during this time, because I know we got some Christmas lovers in this place. I know we do. Amen. Our vision here at MPI is very simple. It's the two greatest commandments that Jesus gave to us. It's loving God and loving people. Look to your neighbor and say, loving God. Look to your other neighbor, say, loving people. And our discipleship strategy is two, it's threefold. It's connect, mentor, and send. We want to connect you to Jesus and to the cross through our life group. So in the back of your handouts, you guys receive one of these. This is our life group schedule. Pick a place to belong. They're happening all throughout the week, all throughout the month different schedules and we want to give you a snapshot right now of what's happening just this week at MPI and so today every Sunday we have encounter prayer night life group all ages 5 p.m. you're welcome to come they go deep into worship prayer just soaking in the glory of God and it's just a powerful time in the Lord's presence that happens every Sunday at 5 and then today single mama's life group is meeting the single moms are getting together this is their Sunday 5 p.m. today, Wednesday, King's Kids Life Group for infants to 11 years old. Come on, make some noise for that. 6.30 every Wednesday, it's a life, a life group for our children, okay? So just like there's uh, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, we do Royal Rangers at Impact for the kids. A place for them to come, to belong, to learn about Jesus and be discipled. Friday, we have our adult, adult life group at Pastor Berto and Griselda's house at 7 o'clock. I know they're rocking it out. That happens every week. So if you're looking for a Bible study, a place to just fellowship with other believers, that is your place to go. This Saturday, we have our Sidewalk Counseling Life Group meeting. All ages are welcome. 9 o'clock, they meet here at the church, and they go out to the abortion clinic and just minister to the people coming in and going out and just really offering hope to the people out there. And uh, also on Saturday is our Evangelism Life Group, which meets every week at 5 p.m. So look to your neighbor and say, there's a lot going on this week. This is fun stuff. So find a place. If you're new here, you're going to love the life groups. How many of you guys love life groups here? Come on. And then our second phase is mentor. We want to mentor you. We have two books. We have our 101 book, which is Welcome to Your New Life. Leaders can take you through that on your schedule. And then our 201 book is Disciples That Make Disciples. And this is a class we do every Sunday where we train up leaders. Amen. How many of you guys want to be a leader in the house of God this morning? Come on. God is good. And then we want to send you out to evangelize, to let people know that they need Jesus, whether it's on the streets, 
street witnessing, street preaching, on your job, in your neighborhoods. We want to go out. And our goal here at MPI is to have 100,000 disciples with 50 churches in this city and 500 around the world. And if you believe we could do that by God's grace, say amen. Woo, praise the Lord this morning. Who's ready to give this morning? Who's excited to give God your best? Come on. We believe here that tithe is a 10% of your total income, and that automatically belongs to Jesus. That is his because all we have, the 100% that we have belongs to him. Everything we have is because of Jesus. And so we, we understand that the principles, the commandment through Scripture is that 10% belongs to the Lord. And an offering is anything above that, an amount between you and the Lord that you give out of your heart of generosity and faithfulness to the Lord. And we designate that towards building and missions fund. If you could turn with me, please, to Luke 16.10. I want to read a scripture verse to you this morning to tie this all in. I know that we will talk about tithes every week, and it's good to talk about tithes because we want to be a people that put God first in every area. And money is always that area that people always have a tough time in. So we want to thank you, all the tithers in this place, for being faithful to God. If you're there at Luke 16, 10, say amen. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. A lot of people think that if they just had more money, they would tithe. But see, tithing is not about an amount. It's about a percentage, and it's 10%. And what this scripture is teaching us is if God gives you $20, And you cannot tithe and be faithful off of the little of the $20 and give your $2. The God cannot trust you with $200 for you to give the $20 off the $200. And then you cannot be trusted with more to give the $200 off of your $2,000 paycheck. Are you guys feeling me this morning? If we cannot be faithful with the little, then God cannot trust us with much. So how many of you want to be trusted by God with much? Come on. I know there's a lot of you here. Hopefully all of you, we want to be trusted by God with much, but we have to start with a little bit that we have. So young people, if you guys get $20 allowance, $2 belongs to Jesus. And you may think to yourself, you know, that's not a lot of money. It doesn't matter. It's 10% belongs to the Lord. Amen. Please stand up to your feet with me this morning. Thank you to all of those that are faithful week after week, generous, giving hearts. God sees it. And we do it all for his glory. It's not for man, it's for him to see his kingdom come to this earth. Amen? Praise God. Let's recite this verse together. Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness, God. We want to be generous to you because you were generous to us. You did not keep back your son who came to die on the cross to save us from our sins, God. And we thank you. And we give all that we have, Lord. We will not allow money to be our master. You are our master. And so I thank you, God, for being Lord, for being uh, in charge of our life. And we make you in charge of our finances. We trust you with the little, God, so you can trust us with the much. I pray, God, that you bless every single person in this place. Bring doors, that, uh, open doors that no man can shut and shut doors that no man can open. We trust you, God, for the promotions, for the raises, God, for open doors of employment for those who are unemployed. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And we declare that MPI will meet its budget 
this month above and beyond what we could ever imagine so that we can win souls for you, God, in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Praise the Lord this morning and come forward as you give, please. Pastor Berto, one of the MPI pastors here. Amen. I guess it's the Pastor Joe, right? <laughs> All right, real quick. So I just, I'm just here. Um, I'm also uh, one of the uh, financial committees for our MPI finance uh, board. So I'm just here to encourage uh, you guys to give to our mission trip. And we're going to be raising up the money, which is $20 for December of next year. Amen. So as you see here in the slide, our to had $20,000. Um, you know, it's really going to be up, up, upon your heart to what you want to give, right? So, as simple as this, there's three different three, three things you want to do is just pray to God for His direction, how much you want to give, amen. The second thing is you're going to place the amount that He wants to place in your heart, okay. And the third thing you're going to provide your monthly gifts for the next twelve months. It's kind of like you know, eight dollars for Netflix. That's going to accumulate to like how much? I don't know, but it's going to be beneficial. You know what I'm saying? We're raising this money so our pastor, our senior pastor, and his armor bearer can go out there, amen, and just provide for the people in the Philippines. They are devastated right now, but as a matter of fact, and they are in need of the, of the gospel. So this money is to advance the kingdom of God. So I just want to encourage everybody to give. Give sacrificially as much as you can. You know, for me, I know when I give, it feels a lot, it feels real good. You know, if I give five dollars right here, you know, take a bus, or whatever, you gotta do with those five dollars. It feels good. Man, how much better does it feel when you give to the kingdom of God? I'm like, to advance the kingdom. That's, that's, you know, that's just so much more rewarding within. But not just one, but you know, you can just, like, say, I'm putting my money where people will not see it, but it's affecting, it's affecting deeper and greater things than God. Amen. Amen. So uh, I just want to ask if we can just pray real quick. Amen. Uh, so let's close our eyes and pray. Father, I just thank you so much for the body of Christ, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that uh, you said in our hearts here at Metro Praise International, Lord, to go out to the Philippines, Lord, and uh, advance your kingdom over there. So, Lord, we just ask that you will provide the $20,000 for the next 12 months from January of 2014 to December of 2014, Lord God. Lord, I, I just pray that you just begin to speak to people's heart how much, they, how much they shall give, Lord God, so we can meet these funds, Lord God. We give you thanks, Father, for the provision. We give you thanks, Father God, for the money that's already coming, Lord. And, God, we just bless you. Let this money, God, be just a, a, a blessing, God. Let it further your kingdom, God. I pray that just miraculous thing will happen when we go out there, Lord God. Let our mindset and our heart be on those things. That great things will happen December 2014. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Amen. You know, if we could put up that slide, if just 50 people gave $50 a month, that's 30000 guys. How many believe this next year we can dedicate to something like that, right? Just everybody doing their part. You don't have to take on more than what you can do. 
Take on what you feel you can do. And already, just already since last week, I've been seeing people give extra to missions. Because some of you guys are like, I'm going to start giving right now. And that's awesome. Give because it's going to go to the same pot. But uh, we're really asking, take this whole month so that you don't feel that anybody's pressured you, you don't feel like anybody's told you what to give, take this whole month and pray and do it for one year and watch what God will do in your life. Amen? Amen. Open up your Bibles with me to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. We're going to look to today's uh, sermon uh, in our series, uh, Revival for Revolution. Talked about it last week. Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. Notes are online as well at uh, Facebook and in our website. I want to uh, encourage you today to take notes because what I have to share with you, I don't think you're going to be able to digest all today. So I want to ask you to take notes. On the back of your announcements is a blank piece of paper. You got smartphones, take them out, let them be smart. And when you go home this week, go back to our website, mpichurch.org. If you ever forget, it's right on that wall right there, mpichurch.org. And go watch the video again from YouTube of the sermon and possibly share it with others. Because there's so much I have to share today that I don't know how much you're going to get to be able to take in. And I think you'll get the the fullness of this by going back over your notes and watching it again. Now, having said that, there is nobody that's going to walk out of here that's not going to understand the basics of what we're talking about. It is going to be so simple. You're going to say, Pastor, I got it. But once you get it, you're going to have to see how deep this goes. The ramifications of this message are literally earth-shaking, life-changing. It is something that you'll never be the same again, and it will affect everything you do. Everything you do will be based upon a sermon like today. Is everybody with me? Okay, so take notes and prepare yourself for what God's Word has to say. Matthew 6.10, Jesus is in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, and He says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, this is really not the Lord's Prayer. We know it is that. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know why this is not really the Lord's Prayer? Because the disciples asked the Lord how to pray. So whose prayer is it really? The disciples' prayer. If you want to know the Lord's prayer, how Jesus prayed, because he had a unique and special relationship with the Father, go to John 17, write that down, go to John 17, and you'll see how Jesus prayed to the Father. So what we've commonly called the Lord's prayer is really the disciples' prayer. And what it starts off as is an acknowledgement of God, our Father, which art in heaven, what? Hallowed be your name. So do we start off prayer with our needs? Should we start off prayer with what we got going on in our life? I'm sick. I'm not feeling well. I need a job. Is that how prayer should start? No, the disciples' prayer should start by honoring who God is. God, you're in heaven. You're my Father, and I have a relationship with you. You're not just the man upstairs. You're my Father. That takes a relationship, doesn't it? You have to be born again to be able to pray that prayer, born of the Spirit. You can't say that prayer unless He truly is your Father and you've been born again because He's not everybody's Father. The Bible says in John chapter 6 that there are some whose Father is the devil. Your Father is the devil. You are like your Father because He is a liar and has been a liar from the beginning. So not everybody has God as a father. Everybody has God as a creator, but not everybody has God as a father. Are you guys understanding that? So we start off prayer 
in a relationship with God, saying, you're my father, and hallowed be your name. What we would say is Halloween, hallowed there. That word hallow means actually honor, praise, and glory to your name. And so how did Halloween ever get to be called that? It was Hallowed Eve, the day that the Catholics, the evening before the Catholics would celebrate All Saints Day, that they would celebrate the saints who had died. They had came up with a day that said, we'll celebrate the evening before the special day. This is a holy evening, hallowed evening. But that's probably the only time you ever hear that word is hallowed. But it actually means praise, honor, and holy and what we say to God when we say, God, hallowed be your, what? Your name. What we're saying is God's name is not to be taken in vain. And God's name is to be respected and admired and loved. And the name of God in the Old Testament is Yahweh. It's the four Hebrew letters, Y-H-W-H, yo heh And we pronounce it Yahweh. A German rendition of that is Jehovah. And many times in the English language, we simply say Lord or Lord God. But his actual Hebrew name is Yahweh. Is everybody with me? So we're hallowing that name. And then right after that, we say, we're supposed to pray this. This is our declaration to God. We're supposed to say, God, you're my father in heaven. Your name is so awesome. And I declare to all the earth, now let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The Greek word there for kingdom, basilalia, means the active rule and reign of God upon the earth through the hearts of his people. Write that down. You're going to take a lot of notes today. If you're just staring at me, don't blame me if your life's busted and disgusted after this because this can really transform your life. I, I, all I can do is give it to you and challenge you to write it down. Why does taking notes uh, uh, help you learn? Taking notes helps you retain information because as you're writing it down, you're thinking it again, and repetition builds uh, knowledge in your brain, in your senses. And so by writing it and seeing it and speaking it to your, your, your mental life, you're going to get it. If you don't want to take notes, that's up to you. But I really want the students in here that want to learn to take it. Okay, now listen, basilalia, you don't have to write that Greek word down. You can spell it on your own. I, you can guess because I can't really spell really well either. Basilalia means the active rule and reign of God upon the earth through his people. God wants to reign on this earth through his people. Now listen to how I just said that. God wants to reign. Think about that. Isn't God already reigning in heaven? And he doesn't need our permission to do that, does he? Does he need to go up to the angels in heaven and say, hey, can we take a vote and me find out if I'm still in charge here? Does every four years, do they have an election in heaven to see who's boss? No. But why is it we're praying this upon earth? Because God has given us a free will. When God created man in the garden, he gave him two trees to choose from. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and what? Evil. What tree did uh, Adam and Eve eat from? The knowledge of what? Uh, the tree of what? Knowledge of good and evil. And they got kicked out of the garden. Since that day, God has been pleading with mankind. Can I rule upon this earth again? Think about that. God, the creator of the earth, has been pleading with mankind, saying, can I rule upon earth? Now, there is going to come a day when he will supersede what you and I want, and he's going to rule and reign on his own. He'll judge the world first, 
He'll cast into a lake of fire those who have been in rebellion and have committed treason against him. And those who have lived for him will rule and reign with him. That will happen whether you want it to or not. Whether you believe it or not, it will happen. You can try to jump off of a building and say, I don't believe in gravity. How many know that doesn't stop gravity? People could say, I don't believe Jesus is going to rule and reign on this earth. That will not stop it happening. There will come a day, and you will consciously be there. Sometimes we think of heaven as just being in light, and it's all ethereal. We don't understand it. No, when God comes and rules and reigns on earth, you will have a resurrected body. Those who have lived for Christ will be here in a body and conscious as you are now. You'll be able to raise your hand when you want. Just raise your hand if you want to right now. Put it down whenever you want. You will have that ability. You will have a conscious mind in a body, but this body will live forever. And those who have disobeyed Christ will have a body, but this body will be fit for destruction, the Bible says, and then they will be cast into the lake of fire. So what happens when bodies die right now? Souls go to heaven or they go to hell. Then at the judgment, when Christ comes to establish his kingdom, souls are given back their bodies. Those who have obeyed Christ and have been a part of his kingdom rule and reign for all of eternity with him here on the earth. Those who have not get cast into the lake of fire. Does everybody get that? This prayer we're praying is God before that day. Before you supersede everybody's will, you, you change everybody's calendar, you dispose of every king and ruler, you literally will break their necks. The Bible says he will put his foot on their necks. The rulers of the nations at that time, many of them, when he comes, the Bible says, will be against his kingdom, but he'll be coming on a white horse with a sword. He will slaughter them. The blood on that day, the Bible says in the Valley of Megiddo, we get the name Armageddon from this, the blood that he slaughtered. There will be 300 million people, and it will be as high as a horse's head for over 144 miles. So there will be a river of blood coming from Jerusalem as he comes and conquers kings. He will step on their necks, break their necks, and slaughter them. Then they will be resurrected in a body and sentenced to hell for eternity. This is real. Are you guys understanding me? This is not something, this is why there's no sense of humor in this today. I want you to understand this. This is what our Bible teaches. When he is asking you to pray in what has been this seemingly uh, just benign, uh, just prayer that we don't take in any sort of radical way, this prayer has become so numb to us that we don't understand the ramifications of it. When you're praying a prayer like this, you're not praying a uh, lukewarm prayer. You're not praying a sissy kind of prayer. You're not praying a prayer that doesn't have a backbone behind it. If you are going to pray this and really mean it, what you're saying is before God tramples the nations and splatters men's blood like grapes, in his wrath. You ever heard of grapes of wrath? This is where the saying comes from. Before God tramples on his enemies like a wine press. God, would you save people here and now? Would your kingdom come without force and judgment upon men's physical bodies? And would you spare them and change their hearts? 
so that when a day of judgment comes, they are not those who you cast down. The Bible says that the lake of fire was designed and created for Satan and his angels. Before we were ever created, God's first creatures were angels. And he gave them a choice to worship and obey or to do their own thing. Lucifer said, I don't want to worship and obey you. And he was cast out of heaven. And the Bible says he fell like lightning. And he deceived a third of all the angels to come with him. And at this point, the Bible then says that he is in the creation of God of the heavens, but he doesn't know where to go. Then God creates the earth and the atmosphere and the solar system, and God creates his second creation with free will, mankind, and God then allows Satan to come and test mankind and ask them, do they want to do it his way or do they want to do it God's way? And so he allowed by the creation of these two trees, one of life, which is choosing God's way, and the tree of knowledge and good and evil, he allowed the devil to dwell there in the form of a serpent. And when Adam and Eve were there, they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. You will suffer death the day you eat of that tree. Now, when they ate of it, the biblical narrative does not say that their body fell over dead. But it does say at that moment, they then realized they were naked. Then they heard the sound of God coming through the garden to meet with them, and they ran and hid. So what died that day? Was it their physical body? Did they become brain dead? Did their soul die that day? What died that day in that garden? Their spirit, that which shined through them like light, and their flesh was transparent, had now gone dead. Imagine a light bulb. You look up to it now. You can't see the bulb. You can't see the design. You can't see the logo. But once that light would go out, you could see the bulb clearly, the bulb itself. But when it's being used with the light, it is translucent. The light shines through it. They were living spirits. Their flesh wasn't what they looked after. They looked after the glory of God. They saw in each other the presence of God. But that day they died on the inside. All they now saw was their flesh. They realized they were naked. And instead of God being one they were desiring to be in a relationship with, when they heard his voice, they ran and hid. Ever since that day, 6,000 years, humans have been trying to make a way back to God, trying to find a way back to the Garden of Eden, find a way of peace in their soul because they know on the inside something's not right, something is missing. And they've tried to fill that void with religion, man's way of pleasing the deity that they created in their own image to make it rain, to change the weather, to stop disease. They created religions and animist ideas that spirits live in trees and animals. Then they began to sacrifice their children, and this is where paganism came from. And 
Now Russell Crowe is in this movie called Noah. But at the time of Noah, just a few hundred years after Adam and Eve, God said, this world is so disgusting to me, I'm going to destroy it. Is there any righteous? And he only found Noah, his wife, Noah's three kids, and their wives, eight people in total. And you fast forward after Noah's flood, and then you get to God choosing Abraham, and then you get to God using Abraham to have Isaac and Jacob, and then Jacob, the 12 tribes come from his children and the nation of Israel, and then God allowing them to be kept safe from a famine and brought to Egypt, but then the Pharaoh turns on them and oppresses them, and they live in bondage in Israel for 400 years, and God raises up who to set them free? Moses sets them free, then he gives them laws, and they establish a nation, and then in that nation he gives them prophets, and then prophets uh, are, are, are the ones that lead them, but the nation doesn't want that, they want kings, so God gives them kings, but these kings take their heart away from the things of God, and God allows pagan nations then again to rise up and conquer them and bring them into captivity, but then he says, I myself will come and be their redemption, to be their salvation. He prophesied this in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 53, that he himself, God, would come in the flesh. Isaiah 9 says that he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. Are you guys with me? And then when Jesus came, Jesus comes in the Father's name, preaching a kingdom to come. And he says, if you want to now enter this kingdom, you have to be born again. And a man named Nicodemus says, do I have to be born again in my body to enter this kingdom? And God says, Jesus says to him, no, because the body, flesh produces flesh. And if you bring that back to Adam and Eve, he was trying to communicate with them. It's not the flesh that you need to be reborn because it still survived after the fall. What you need to be reborn is that which Adam and Eve lost, their spirit. So he said in John 3, what gives birth to the flesh is flesh. What gives birth to the spirit is spirit. He said, I say to you, you must be born of the spirit. Is anybody born again here? Now, when Jesus walked the earth, he is teaching his disciples to pray this. He is saying to them, pray that my active rule and reign will come upon the earth through my people on this earth as it is in heaven, the kingdom, the basilelia. Are you all with me? Now, look at these notes for me, please. I want to give you two definitions. Went over them last week, but I want to go uh, back over them today. Spiritual revival and cultural revolution. When we look to the Bible, there is this idea that God's people don't always do what they're supposed to do. From the time of Cain killing Abel and God saying to Cain, don't kill Abel. Sin is crouching at your door. Father spoke to Cain and said, sin is crouching at your door and wants to have mastery over you. Don't let it. And then what did Cain do? He killed his brother. He let sin master him. And then you look at the people of Israel. They let sin master them. And you look at some of the disciples in Jesus' day. Judas let sin master him. And then you go to the church. And then you see that some of the churches that were established by the apostles, like in Corinth and Galatia, that's where we get the book Corinthians and Galatians from, sin began to master them. In the Corinth church, a man began to sleep with his stepmom. 
And Paul said, what is wrong with you guys? You are disgusting. He said to the church leaders, tell them to repent or kick them out of the church. We don't allow this vile behavior here. Read 1 Corinthians 5. In the book of Galatians chapter 3, they are being tricked into believing another gospel. Galatians 1 says, you have believed another gospel, and this gospel will anathemize you. Anathema in the Greek means eternally damn your soul. And in Galatians chapter 3, he says, who's bewitched your mind to change the grace of God into this other thing you're calling now a gospel, which is no gospel at all? What a spiritual revival is, is when that which used to be alive has now died, comes back to life. If you have never been alive, you cannot be revived. Something revived has to have at once been dead, or excuse me, alive, and died, and come back alive. I'm going to say this again, and the definition's up here, and I'm going to read it. For something to be revived, it has to have once been alive died and comes back to life and the bible speaks about this and i have the passages here it's talking about a holy spirit inward awakening and returning of the church somebody say the church to their first love for god and a self-sacrificing love for people that impacts the community with salvation and community transformation open up your bibles to psalms 80 verses 16 and 19 i want to show this to you and when we look at this, we have to ask ourselves this question. Do I need to be revived? Now, if you are still dead in your sins, you are a sinner, you are still in the first state that Adam and Eve were in. Dead. Does everybody get that? When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, in that day you shall surely what? Die. If you have not been born again, you are still what? Dead. So if someone today is not born again, am I speaking to them about revival? No. Who am I speaking to about revival? The church. Those, or Christians, those who have already had a personal relationship with God that were dead but were made alive. Christ saved you, transformed you, gave you a new life. But you have now gone into death by your sin you now have compromised you now have backslidden you've gone back to the things that god saved you from now we don't have all eight million chicagoans in this building today but i'm expecting you to take this message and share it with your co-workers share it with your friends and your family members at christmas dinners because there's a lot of people that are backslidden that need to be revived in this city. Look at Psalms 80, verse 16. It says, Your vine is cut down. It is burned with fire. At your rebuke, your people perish. At God's rebuke, His people what? Perish. See, these are God's people. He's saying, these are my people. These aren't the pagans. These are those that already know me. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us, and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Who is the we that needs to be saved? God's people. 
God's people that have been rebuked by God. Why would God's people get rebuked? Because they haven't done what God asks them to do. When the church, Christians, don't do what God asks them to do, they get rebuked by God. Has anybody here been rebuked by God? The word rebuke means to stop. Has God ever commanded you to stop something as a Christian? I know as a Christian there have been times that I have given way to sin and God has come into my life and he has rebuked me and he has said, stop sinning. But there are some that don't listen to that rebuke and they keep sinning and they keep sinning and they keep sinning. And God then rebukes them and they will perish and become just like the lost if they don't repent. They will perish and go to hell just like the person who has never known Christ is going to hell. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel chapter 33. The righteous person who turns from their righteousness on the day of judgment will be just like the wicked who's done wickedness on the day of judgment. So you may say to yourself, Pastor, I'm so good in my walk with God. I am not wicked like others. But if you have turned your back on God and you've begun to live outside of his commands, Ezekiel chapter 33 warns you that you will be judged just like the wicked. Somebody say, help us, God. Look at Ezekiel chapter 33. Start in verse 11. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord God Almighty, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they may turn from their ways and live. Turn from evil, turn from your evil ways. Will you die, people of Israel? Therefore, son of man, say to your people, say this to them. If someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for what? Highlight that for me, sir. Profivor. If someone who is righteous disobeys, that person's former righteousness will count for nothing. And if someone who is wicked repents, that person's former wickedness will not bring condemnation. So think of it like this. If there is a wicked person and they say, I'm sorry for living wicked, God. I want to change my ways. God says, I'm not going to remember your wicked ways anymore. You can live righteous. Amen? He will forget their wicked ways and say, welcome to the kingdom. Start living righteous. But if someone who has already prayed that prayer turned their life to God and is living righteous and now starts to live wickedly, God says, I'm going to forget your righteousness. I will now hold to your account your present day wickedness. So if the righteous turn from their right ways, what will God remember? Wickedness. So if the righteous turn from God's ways, what will he remember? Their wickedness. But if the wicked turn from their wickedness to God's righteousness, what will he remember? The righteous. Let's go back to our notes. God, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This spiritual revival is for those here today. 
I have to ask you that question, ma'am, sister, brother, young, old. Are you right with God? Are you right with God? Are you living righteous? If you have not been born again, you need to be born again so you might be saved. Turn from your wickedness, turn to God, and he will no longer remember your wickedness. Today's your day. But Christian, if you are here and you say, I've been born again, I have had Christ come alive in me, but you're not living right, be warned today. You may die and Christ no longer remember your righteousness. That's pretty serious, isn't it? I mean, that's a big deal. How many people do you know that are probably in that state right now of God judging them because they don't live righteous, but they used to be? How many coworkers do you know say, I go to church, I'll be there Christmas and Easter? How many people do you know call on the name of Christ, but they don't live like it? They're gossips, they're slanderers, they let un, uh, uh, unwholesome words come out of their mouth. They have sex before marriage. Maybe they, they're doing homosexuality. They kill their unborn children in abortion clinics. They, they have lied. They have stolen. They have cheated. They have broken God's commands. They take his name in vain. They don't honor it. They curse and use his name. They disobey their parents, young people. They're rebellious towards their parents. They covet what others have. They're greedy. Their God is their own passions and desires. They are led by their own thinking, their own ideas, their own dreams and visions are what they guide their life by. How many people do we know that live like that today? Statistically speaking, the Great Evangelical Recession, the book, says that 93% of Americans live that way right now. Only 7% of Americans actually hold to the Bible being the authoritative rule of morality and do their best to live by it. 7% of Americans. Now there's about 60 to 70% that call themselves Christians. But those same people that call themselves Christians are the ones supporting the pornography industry, are the ones greedy and waiting in line to get all these presents but give nothing to the church. They're the same ones, the young people that go to church today that will be at school cussing and cursing tomorrow. You see, there's only about 7% of our culture that actually says, I want to live by this. And there's about 60% that say, I believe in this. So that means there's about, what, out of 8 million? What is, what is 50% of 8 million? There's about 4 million people in this city that are hypocrites. Four million people that God is saying, I am going to forget your righteousness the day I judge you. You're not right with me. I'll go to the definitions here. It's the second one, cultural revolution. And I'm going to prove this in just a moment. I'm preaching it more so right now, but I want to prove it as well because I want to speak to some of your hearts that may be doubting this. I want to show it to you clearly. A cultural revolution, the word revolution has the, uh, you know, the word revolve in there means to turn your values to something else. The American Revolution talked about us fighting against, uh, you know, tyranny, the oppressive, oppressive regime of the English. So we changed our values from imperialism, being ruled by dictators and kings and queens, to democracy. Does everybody understand that? Revolution. 
But there are also revolutions that don't have positive consequences. There was a sexual revolution that happened in the 60s that most of us here have been born out for that, have taken for granted what they did to change, revolve our mind. They turned our values in the 60s in America from the God values to other values. And I'm not painting a picture of uh, a perfect picture of leave it to beaver, but I will show you that culturally we change in America over the last 50 or 60 years where it was more normal to get married now it's more normal for people to live together before they get married it was more normal to have your children now it's becoming more normal to abort your children one out of two women will have an abortion sometime in their life it was normal not to have an STD now one out of two college students have a sexually transmitted disease at one time it was normal to be straight and heterosexual now homosexuality is becoming normal at one time, it was normal not to kill your children. Now, America, since 70s, since Roe v. Wade, we've killed over 50 million babies. Do you understand what happened? A revolution happened. A cultural revolution happened in our society. And right now, we have been turned around, and we don't even know which direction we're going. See, these young men right here may not remember a time when it was okay to walk on the south side. They may not remember that time. But the south side did not always invoke a thought, I'm going to get beat up. My dad grew up on the south side, right by Midway Airport. Growing up there did not invoke the thought, there are gangs here. But gangs took over a section of our city to where now we lead the nation in the amount of murders. And I'm not saying it's just a west side thing or a south side thing, but that's predominantly where it's happening. And we, we have been so twisted around that these young men probably don't even remember a time when little Wayne was considered a criminal and something you didn't want to be like. They don't remember that time. What they remember now is I want to be like the hot boys. I want to be like this. I want to be like this. They have forgotten what it was like to want to be like their dad. The African-American family used to be the strongest family unit in this nation. And the African-American family was built upon the church in their community. This is black history. I don't have time to get into it. I worked eight years in the South. I know this. And what happened was the church backslid. The pastors went after money. They went after politics. They changed from being righteous, not all of them, but some, into wickedness. The family fell apart, and then we saw the degradation of a culture. Martin Luther King Jr. did not fight for equality so that people could walk with their pants sagging and be in gangs. And your parents, Latinos, did not come from other nations so that you now could challenge those gangs at Humble Park. Like it's the West Side Story, Latinos against the blacks. Who's going to have more murders this year? Who's going to have more aborted pregnancies this year? Who's going to have more dropouts? What minority is going to degrade itself the most? And I'll talk about white, pink, and purple in a minute, but I'm just giving you examples. They don't even remember a time when Fresh Prince of Belair was looked at like a fool. We grew up looking at Fresh Prince of Bel-Air like he was funny, but he was an idiot. He was a fool. And what he did was he changed the way you thought about your parents. He changed the way you thought about authority. And he changed the way you thought about what school was and what education was. He changed you. I don't even have time to get into other people who have done that. Cultural revolution is a changing. The church needs to be at the center of this. 
The church needs to be at the center of a culture changing. If we don't change the culture now, what's going to change the culture? Before I even read this, just ask yourself this question. If the church does not change the south side, what is going to change the south side? Somebody say, well, we need more education. But they don't have schools in the south side? Well, we need better teachers. Well, they don't have teachers. We need better police officers. Well, they don't have police officers. What is the answer? What are we missing? What are we missing? Well, they need better families. How does a family get to become a family? Is a man having sex with a woman producing a baby, is that a family? Of course not. They need God. Thank you, sir. Let's give it up for the armor bearer with spiky hair. Amen. That's a good church for you. Look at this definition right here. The inward turning of a society's value system to the commands of God, resulting in forsaking sin for the righteousness of God and the culture as a whole. Look at Jonah chapter 3, verse 7, please. I'm not mad. I'm just serious. You understand? I'm just serious today. I want you to get this. We have former gang members here. We have former homosexuals and lesbians here. We have former... Uh, corporate greed people here that cheated on their job to get ahead, that broke rules here, committed what they would say white-collar crimes here. You see, the answer to a broken, messed-up culture is always Jesus. It's always Jesus. It's always been Jesus, and it will always be Jesus. Anything you try to put in place of Jesus will only cause more harm. In the Soviet Union, they said government will replace our Jesus. We'll put Marxism in the place of religion. And they fell apart, and America still stands. Why did capitalism in America succeed and communism in Russia fall? Because we were a free people based on morals and the religious values of the Judeo-Christian faith. But why is it now we're falling apart? Why is it now we're seeing corruption in our politics, in our businesses, in our scandals where we're stealing people's retirement? Why is our nation becoming a welfare state? Why are young people shooting and killing each other? Why are children not living in families anymore but in dysfunctional homes? What happened to us? We changed. See, America has a unique place in human history. Not every nation can say this. Not every nation can say that they were founded upon principles that were found in the Bible. Before we read it, go back to our notes. Hold your place there in Jonah. I'm going to go to the, the prayer of George Washington, and then I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to be going all over these notes. Just be, bear with me. George Washington in 1789, we, we just had Thanksgiving. Here's what he said at the first Thanksgiving. Here's his prayer. George Washington. How many think he's pretty important to America? Okay, how many think we should listen to what George Washington said? George Washington probably knows a thing or two about American values, wouldn't you say? He said that we may then unite in most humbly offering our prayers and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of the nations. This is what your president said when he founded this nation. You can hardly even see a preacher talk like this, let alone a government official. This is the president starting a holiday, holy day, called Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving wasn't to thank each other. Well, I just thank you for being in my life. You're so cute. I thank you because you're so handsome. I thank No, it was to thank God. It was established to thank God. He said, I'm going to offer up prayers on this day. 
and supplications to the great Lord and ruler of the nations and beseech him to pardon our national and other transgressions. Oh, no, pastor, don't talk to me about sin. They don't even want pastors talking about sin. Here you have the president of the United States saying, God, forgive us whatever we've done. Whatever we've done against your law. You were saying, man, what were they doing back there? Were they selling crack? Were they selling crack back there? Well, what was going on? Was there pedophiling going on? Was there, was there same-sex marriage going on? Was there Miley Cyrus twerking in front of the White House? Well, what was going on back there? You know what was going on? People were lying. People were greedy. People were owning slaves. People were taking things that didn't belong to them, stealing. People were taking the name of the Lord in vain. They were abusing alcohol and other substances. And our president said back then, he said, hey, I, whoa, whoa, we got to take out a day once a year where we thank God for all that he did, and we're not going to thank him in some rebellious, hypocritical way and say, thank you for the money you gave me, Father, so I can go buy a stripper now. No, we're going to thank him for the freedoms and the prosperity he gave us and ask him to forgive us when we abuse them and ask him to forgive us when we misuse them president he said pardon our national and other transgressions to enable us whether in public or private stations to perform our several and related duties properly and punctually to render our national government a blessing to all people by constantly being a government of wise just and constitutional laws discreetly and faithfully executed and obeyed to protect and guide all sovereign nations and to bless them with good government, peace, concord, to promote. Why are we doing all this, George? To promote the knowledge and practice of true, of true, of true religion and virtue and the increase of science among them and us. And generally to grant unto all mankind such a degree of temporal prosperity as he alone knows to be best. That's what he said. Look at your neighbor and say, that's what he said. So now today, you have a preacher that's saying, we as Christians need to be revived and we need to lead a cultural revolution and people want to look at me and say, that guy's out of his mind. He's a bigot. This guy is trying to brainwash us. This person is crazy. And now I point back to our founding father and I say, what you got to say now? What you got to say now? I didn't come to this nation in 1700s. My family, you can talk to Polish, Italian. We came 100 years ago. So I'm just like many of you just a few decades earlier. When we came to this nation, we came to a nation that had already prayed these prayers, that had already set forth a pattern, true religion, virtue, morals. Please find that quote by John Adams, a moral religious people on the wall builder site, please. So now I'm going to ask you this question as we get ready to get into the message. Look at your neighbor and say he's just going to get into the message. This is the introduction. I haven't even got to the point where you need to take notes yet. I mean, just a little jot and tittle, but I'm, we're getting to the, we're just getting past the review. We're getting past the review right now. Amen. 
you happy you came to church? This will make you smile. Amen. And the crazy part is, is it's serious. I'm being serious. You will literally see this is the review. He's going to find that quote. But here, here's what we need to understand that's life transforming. Here it is. And he's going to put this quote up by John Adams, our second president. Anybody know who John Adams is? Right? A few of you. It's our second president. He, he's, a, he's a pretty important person to our, our history here. See, not every nation can say this. India can't say their first president said, I dedicate this nation to God and to virtue and to true religion. Mexico's president can't say that. Poland's president can't say Italian. I'm telling you, we trace our history as a bunch of pilgrims coming here to find religious freedom. And when these guys got free from the British who were a Christian nation who married their values to their military and oppressed people, the Protestants, the non-government Christians, were the ones oppressed the most. That's why we left and came here. Of course, there were others who came with us. Of course, there were greedy and slave traders and other things because it was an open nation free for all. But Plymouth Rock, the pilgrims, the Puritans, those who established the northeast part of our country, who developed the nation, majority of them were all Christians seeking religious freedom and a free market of government, what we would call capitalism. Don't have time for that. Here's the second president of the United States. We have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people it is wholly inadequate to the government of any other why is it America has so many freedoms so we can start up strip clubs and pornography so that we can have drug dealers on every corner so that we can shoot each other up. No, the reason why we had the right to bear arms, where most nations don't let you carry a gun, was so that good Christian people, moral people, could fight against tyranny. Why is it we have a judicial process? It's not so that rapists can continually go out, uh, come to court, go out, rape again, come back again. No, it was so that you were not falsely accused by a government. That's why you had a representative. That's why you would be judged by a jury of your peers. But now our judicial system is so corrupted by money, the judges don't even bring down the gavel. And we have a rotating uh, criminal sector of our society that has committed two and three murders and have done the time to come back out and do it again. Rapists coming back out and doing it again. We have gun ownership, but now we have people with gun ownership killing children in schools. But didn't we always have guns? Didn't we always have schools? Why didn't anybody in the 1800s take their shotgun, walk into a school, and start shooting children then? Because there wasn't a revolution then. There was a mindset back then, guns are for protection, children are valuable, we don't shoot children. But you begin teaching them things like evolution, that children are nothing more than animals, you're nothing more than an animal. You begin to teach people to live by their own passions. Well, if you feel like it, that must mean it's right. If you must, if you think it and you feel it and, it and it feels good, it must be right. And then all of a sudden, you just change people's morals and values. And yes, these are extreme examples, but they are the ones that are peeking out for us to look at. But there's a bedrock underneath it of the corruption that we have changed. We're not building on God's foundation. We're building on man's opinion. Now let's go to the message. Let's go to the new definitions today. Everybody say new definitions. Here they are, three of them quickly. Worldview, biblical worldview, and secular worldview. This is what I want to talk to you today about. And I'm on the holiday schedule, amen? 
I'm on that schedule right now that everybody else is on, waiting long lines, you know what I'm saying, having long dinners, you know what I'm talking about, waiting for like a Super Bowl to go double overtime. I'm on that schedule of holiday season, amen? So we're going to go long time today. We're going to hang out with Jesus, amen? We might as well. It's about him this, this season, right? It's like his birthday, you know what I'm saying? But we want to get out of his house to go to our other house, you know? It's your birthday. I'm only going to hang out for five minutes, but I'm going to go hang out over here. And then on your birthday, I'm going to give everybody else gifts. How does that sound? We're not going to give him any gifts, but we're going to give everybody else gifts. Oh, look at your neighbor and say, he's the reason for the season. <laughs> a worldview is a way in which people see the world based upon their beliefs and values. You cannot change your worldview by accident. A worldview is changed on purpose. You have a worldview whether you know it or not. But for you to change it, you have to make an effort. Everybody has a worldview. Think about a worldview as a set of glasses that you put on and you view the world through these beliefs. So if you believe in an evolutionary worldview, when you put on the glasses of an evolutionary worldview, you see animals instead of human beings. You see dog-eat-dog world. You see might makes right. Whatever you can get away with is the survival of the fittest. You see the weak are your meat. If you put on the worldview of Islam, everything you see is going to go through the Quran, in Sharia law, in the Hadith, in what the Prophet Muhammad said and his companions, the Caiaphas, and how they led through human history. You're going to view the world through what he said and did. If you are an atheist, you're going to put on these goggles and you're going to see the world that it's all about you, humanism, materialism, the things you can touch and feel and see, and that the world is really devoid of meaning except for the temporary time you're here. But if you put on a worldview of a Christian, what you see the world through is the Bible. You see that loving God is your first priority. To love your neighbor as yourself is the secondary priority. You're to treat others by that standard. You're to honor and obey the commands. That's your worldview. A biblical worldview is based on the traditions of Christ. A secular worldview, which is the most popular in our society, because we don't live in Saudi Arabia, Afghanistan, Pakistan. We live in America. So the number one competing worldview, the other pair of glasses your friends and family are going to put on today more than likely will be a secular worldview which is a worldview based on humanism which means man decides what's right and materialism it's only what's here materially that I can taste touch see smell and hear with my five senses that really matters you'll hear them say things like this I don't believe in God I believe in science you ever heard anybody say that I don't believe in God. I believe in science. I only believe what I can taste and touch and test and verify. Those are the definitions. Now, here's five reasons for the biblical worldview. And I wish I could give you all of these in depth, but this is really just a small part of today's message. Jesus Among Other Gods by Ravi Zachariah is going to be the one that's going to help you understand this. But number one, theism is greater than atheism deism and pantheism 
Atheism is the belief that God doesn't exist. Deism is that God can't be personally known. And pantheism is that God exists in the material world. Theism is greater than those three. I don't have time to defend every one of these points. This is called inductive logic. Deductive logic means within the statement itself it can be proven true. You know, my car is red. Joe's car is red, you know, and then you go, if Joe has a car, the car must be red. Okay, that's deductive logic. This is inductive logic, which means that the statement itself does not prove it. You have to research like you do in the scientific method. The scientific method is inductive reasoning. You have to study this out to see if it's true. I don't have time to prove each one of these points. I'm just declaring them to be true. If you want further research, you can go to this book or talk to one of our leaders. But theism, greater than atheism, deism, and pantheism. Monotheism is greater than polytheism, the belief in many gods. The Bible, 66 books, is greater than the Quran, Islamic religion, the Torah alone, Jewish religion, and the hidden words by the Baha'i religion. Those are the three monotheistic religions of the world, Islam, Judaism, and the Baha'i. There's other smaller ones, but these are the main monotheistic religions. The evangelical faith is greater than Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, and the Watchtower, which are the, the greatest number of people who believe in the 66 books of the Bible. But the evangelical faith is greater than how Roman Catholicism interprets that Bible, how Mormonism interprets that Bible, and how the Watchtower interprets that Bible. Once again, you don't have to believe it just because I'm saying it. I'm saying if you study it, I believe you'll come to this conclusion. And the biblical worldview is the worldview of the evangelical faith. Does everybody get that? Here's five reasons for the biblical worldview. Theism is greater than atheism, deism, pantheism. Monotheism is greater than polytheism. The Bible, all 66 books, is greater than the Quran, the Islamic religion, the Torah alone, Jewish religion, and the hidden words of Baha'i religion. The evangelical faith, number four, is greater than Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, and the watchtower of the Jehovah Witnesses. And the biblical worldview is the worldview of the evangelical faith. Now, what are the seven attributes of the biblical worldview? The Bible, 66 books found in the Old and New Testament is the inerrant inspired word of God, much to our confession we read today. The Trinity, there's only one God revealed in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who's co-equal and co-eternal. Jesus has two natures, Son of God, born of the virgin, and thus is fully God and fully man. Salvation by faith alone, it's not by works, but it's trusting in Jesus' death on the cross, burial, and resurrection. There's two practices of our church, the baptism and communion. In water, the second coming of Jesus, he's going to come and rule and reign on this earth. And lastly, there's going to be a final judgment where everyone receives back a body to their soul. And those who have not accepted Christ perish in a lake of fire. And those who have rule and reign on the earth. Is everybody with me on that? Now, would you scroll down to the slides here? Here's the, the heart of the message. And hopefully it won't be as long as the introduction. Just scroll down so they can see this, please. These, these all come from the book Lie by Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis, and I provide the link as well in the notes. Uh, start at the beginning, please, now. This is the standoff here where we are in this culture today. Our greatest enemy towards, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. The greatest tool Satan is using in people's minds and thoughts against the biblical worldview is not Islam. It's not 
Roman Catholicism. It's not Hinduism. The biggest thing we have to fight the cultural battle with in our society is our worldview against the secular worldview. And I gave you the definition of that. The secular worldview said it's all about humans, what we decide is right, and it's all about materialism, what we touch, taste, see, smell, and hear. Whatever is materially known, that's what we live by. I don't believe in God. I believe in science, right? That's how they think. Now here we are. We stand with our own presuppositions. We stand with our own beliefs. The biblical person says, I believe I'm created by God. The secular person can ask them, were you there when God created Adam and Eve? No, I wasn't. Well, how do you know? Well, this book tells me. Well, that's a presupposition. Nobody can know for sure. Okay. But how do you know where you came from? Well, I came from a monkey that came from a mammal that came from a fish that came from a single-celled organism that came from the earth cooling down over million billions of years. How do you know? A science book told me. Were you there? No, I wasn't. Okay. So now we've got two presuppositions. And by the way, the Christian can use a science book. Right? Sir Isaac Newton was one of the greatest scientists, was a Christian, wrote more about the Bible than he did about science. Okay? The guy who led the American genome code for the uh, United States government, the scientific team, is a Christian. Okay? We can be Christian. Francis Collins, Dr. Francis Collins. And we could be here all day naming Christian doctors. But the bottom line is we both come with our presuppositions, and we both say we have ways to prove it. But there's only one problem with that. Only one foundation, when it's held to scrutiny, can really hold up. One is of sand and one is of rock. Scroll down a little bit and I'll show you how you can know this. Go to the next one. I want you to see this. The next one, sir. You got to scroll down till I tell you to stop now. Right here. For the one that says, okay, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. They now have to explain why is there such thing called science? The uniformity of nature. They say, well, it is, it's just that way. How do you know it's just that way? Because I use my senses and my logic to do experiments, and I'm able to understand what is logically true in the experiments that I do. I can test gravity. I can test uh, chemicals. How do you have laws of logic? They say, well, I just believe that it is. I have an absolute sense in myself, a morality. I think, therefore, I am. I have an absolute sense that I exist, that these laws of logic are true, and therefore I can do science and see the uniformity of nature. But how do you know all of that's true? You take all of that worldview, and you can simply say back to them, how do you know you're not a brain in a scientist's jar on the planet Mars, and he is making you see right now a virtual reality, and every time you get happy, he's punching these buttons in his computer and twerking your brain, and every time he makes you, sa makes you sad, you cry. How do you know reality itself even exists? There is no explanation in a material world why materialism is even here. 
How do you know materialism exists? How do you know other people exist? Other people could be an illusion in your mind. You could be in a comatose right now having a dream and you think everyone is real, but really you're the only one that is real and everyone else is just a figment of your imagination right now. They actually call this solipsism. It's actually a philosophical belief that you're in a dream state and you're the only one that's here. You see, God's word is our foundation because we say God created us. That is the explanation of materialism. God is a rational mind. That's why laws of logic are known. And God is a moral being. That's why we have morality. Now, this is a simple cartoon, and you may say, well, Joe, I can erase God's word, and I can put whatever I want there. I dare you to try it. I dare you to try it. This little cartoon will spank your intellectual hiney. And as a matter of fact, the truth is, most secularists, and I have the book, The Atheist Guide to Reality, by one of the smartest atheists on the planet, they admit this is true and that there is no meaning of life and there is no foundation for their life and that there is no such thing as love, hate, or anything. You're only a biological machine, no different than an ant operating on principles, and you'll die and you won't exist anymore. These are the thoughts of atheists. They're called nihilists. They know that there is no foundation. This is what Nietzsche taught when he said God is dead. And the situation is, is that right now your culture wants to flirt with these ideas but not totally understand the ramifications of them. And so you need to bring it back up to them and say, why is it you believe what you believe? For example, let's say somebody says, I don't believe there is an absolute truth. Everybody can define what is true for them. It's not true for me, but it might be true for you. Has anybody ever heard that before? If someone says, I don't believe in absolute truth, what can you say back to them? Do you believe that's an absolute truth? I don't believe truth exists. Do you believe that statement you just said is true? If they say to you, it may be true for you, but it's not true for me, what can you say back to them? Is that statement true for me, or is that just true for you? Do you understand how it becomes silliness? Because there's no foundation for it. How about the person that says, I only believe what science can tell me. Can science tell you to believe that statement? Does science tell you anything? Does a laboratory tell you anything? Does a beaker in a laboratory talk? Does a microscope talk? I only believe what science tells me. How did science tell you to believe that? You see, there's, there's, no, there's no rationality to that, is there? You see, what the world is doing is the world has gone from its foundation. And they're like that cartoon where the roadrunner would run off the bridge or run off the cliff, and he would be there for a little bit and spin his air, uh, spin his, his, his little legs. And then he would look around, and then he would fall. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? And that's what's happening right now. Your culture has changed from putting its hope in God and a foundation of God, and they're thinking that human reason is all that they need. Yet they can't define the value of humans. You ever heard this statement that says, you know, you can do whatever you want, man, just don't hurt anybody. You know, I'll do whatever I want, you know, as long as I don't hurt anybody, I'm okay. That's how I know I'm a good person. You ever heard anybody say that? How do you know that makes a good person? 
That's the question you ask them. How do you know that makes a good person? Well, I just think if I don't hurt anybody, I'm a good person. Who, who told you that? What if someone down the road says, if I hurt people, I'm a good person? You ever hear of Hitler? Didn't he think hurting people made him a good person? You ever heard of Stalin? You ever heard of Mussolini? Do you know that atheist regimes in the last 50 years, going back almost to World War I, really, so almost 100 years, do you know that atheist regimes account for almost 100 million deaths in our culture? They estimate that Germany killed 10 million. They estimate that Stalin killed upwards of 30 million. They estimate that, that Mussolini and that the Pol Pot of Cambodia killed tens of millions. In Cuba, they've killed people. Do you know that atheist regimes are responsible for more deaths on this last century than any world religion, any war of any kind? This thought has killed more people. Why? Because when you have no foundation and you say, uh, I can't tell you what's right other than what man says what's right, then what happens? Might makes right. Kim Jong-il in North Korea, what makes him right? Because he's might. He tells everyone there what to believe. See, religion is not set up that way. See, when we set up America, we didn't say, now let me make you believe what I believe. See, the greatest thing we did as Christians is we allowed there to be a democracy. That meant that we gave everybody a vote. And I'm not saying America equals Christianity. I'm just giving an example. We allowed people to vote so you could be in our politics without subscribing to our beliefs. You can't do that in an Islamic country. When it's a Sharia law run, that means it's run by the Quran, the Hadith, and then the Sunnah, the tradition of the, of, of the Prophet. If you're not a Muslim, you can't have any rights in that nation. They won't even let you rebuild churches that have been run down. And if you walk on the same street, you have to get to the other side. I will show you this. I wrote a book on Islam. This is not make-believe. There's only three main worldviews that run the world right now. Communism, Western values, and Islam, Sharia law. Are you guys with me? Look at communism and look at Sharia law and then look at Western values and ask yourself, where did Western values come from? Where did these values came from? We based it on God's word. I'm sorry if I'm boring some of you. This only has to do with everything in your life. Um, let's go up to the next one, human reason and God's word. I'm sorry that uh, I can't tell more funny jokes today um, to make you care about what's going on in the world around you. Um, anyways, okay, so when you come into the world, this is what they're going to ask you to do. Those two opposing views. In America today, talking now specifically about us, what are they going to ask you to do? Come to neutral ground and interact with us by letting go of your beliefs because religion does not belong in the public sphere. Christianity does not belong in our jobs, does not belong in our educational system. We are going to now ask you to give up your worldview and your values and come onto neutral ground. And what happens the moment you do that, they have already won. Because guess what? They don't give up their worldview. They don't change how they look at things. You ever heard the statement, uh, do, if you don't do it for yourself, no one will do it for you? That's a humanistic worldview. That's a humanistic world. The humanistic worldview is you come first. What is God's worldview about you? You come what? Second, who comes first? God. And technically, who comes after God? Others prefer others above yourself? 
But you're second to third in God's world's view. But in secular humanism, what are they teaching our kids now? What do they teach them on the south side? Because I've been a part of these programs. What are they teaching them? Believe in yourself because no one else will believe in you. How is that working on building our students' self-esteem when we teach them secular humanism? Believe in yourself. Believe in yourself. Are they doing well now that we've taught them that? How did we used to teach morals? Believe in God. Believe in God. Now don't lie. Believe in God. Tell the truth. Believe in God. Don't steal. Believe in God. Do unto neighbors as you want done unto you. Now they're saying, believe in you. Don't lie. Believe in you. Don't steal. And now what do they say? Hey, I want to do what I want to do. Hey, believe in me. Don't lie. Hey, believing in me and telling a lie is better sometimes than believing in me not telling a lie. How many know you can succeed in life by telling lies sometimes? How many know you can succeed in life by cutting corners? How many know you can succeed in life sometimes by taking the easy way out? Let me give you an example. There was once a man that went through his whole university cheating and just skipping out on class, and he was an expert at cheating. He could, he could take notes and put them in his hand. He could uh, look at his uh, you know, uh, co-workers, uh, I mean uh, co-students' papers. He was just an expert. Now, this one professor knew that he was cheating. He just knew he was cheating. So one day in class, he put him up in front of the, the class with three students, and it was a Shakespearean class, and he said, I want all of you to quote Shakespeare, different sonnets, you know, different things and he said there's no way this guy can cheat around this but the guy previously had prepared something on his hand or did something and he had cheated and uh, there was just a way that the professor couldn't tell what he had done but he knew he had cheated nonetheless and he won he won this little contest now after all of these years he sees the man that's cheated and they're at a reunion and the families are there and the men they're in a bathroom this is the story as it's told to me. They're in a bathroom, and the professor now is talking to the student who's a lot older, and the student is basically saying, you know what? What difference does it make if I've cheated when I was in your class? I'm a successful businessman now. I have all the money and wealth I could ever need. This class was meaningless to my life. It didn't matter. So what difference does it make? And at that moment, his child comes out from the stall and has tears in his eyes, and the professor looks to him and says, it makes the difference to him. You see, we're not understanding the kind of world that we're leaving for our children. You see, people are saying, what difference does it make if I look at music like this or, or look, look at TV and pornography or have these kind of worldviews or if we say that same sex is a good marriage? And what difference does it make to our culture as a whole? And that's the kind of rational thinking we've been having for 50 years. What does it really matter if Fresh Prince of Belair, he cusses and he does this? What does it really matter if we keep lowering the standards? What does it matter if the church you know, ordains, you know, homosexuals and lesbians? What does it matter if they stop talking about sin? And what we're realizing now is it matters to the next generation. And things that our grandparents used to be ashamed of, now churches don't make any issue of. Let's go to the next slide. Go down, please. And one more. And here's one of the, the worldviews that they want to teach you, and I'm going to close with this. Thank you for your patience today. Here's one of the worldviews that they want to teach you, is that if evolution is in control of society and we're just herding like animals, why do we all come today? Because we herded together. 
like cows herding together. You were in Texas. Did you see some cattle out there? Yeah, they herd together. We're just herding together. We're just herding. Why do we get together and have sex and and marriage and all that? Because we're just procreating. We're just, you know, making our species safe, just like penguins. Anybody ever watch Happy Feet? You know, we're just like little penguins. We're just, there's nothing wrong with Happy Feet, but we're just little penguins doing our thing. But hold on. Think about this. If life has no meaning beyond evolution, just beyond we came from the goo through the zoo to you, does everybody get that? The biological goo through the zoo, all this animal evolution. And now here you are. If that's all life is, then define for me meaning. What is meaning? What, what is family? Does it even matter? If we're going to die and be forgotten, does anything we do really matter here? After Hitler oppressed and killed the Jewish people for all of those years, and then he committed suicide up there in his eagle's nest as they were coming into Austria. He committed suicide. The 101st Airborne was coming to get him. And Mother Teresa died her her last breath, and Nelson Mandela breathed his last breath. What's the difference between these people? If there's no eternity and we're just animals... What's the difference? One was a strong animal. When you're, when you're watching these uh, Animal Planet shows and they're showing the cheetah go after the little antelope at the African plains and it's eating the thing, how many men here get excited when it catches the antelope? I get excited. I'm like, catch that antelope. Eat that antelope. Get that bunny rabbit. Go get that thing. How many like watching the eagle swoops down and gets the little rodent and takes it up and eats it? I get excited. How many here ever fished? Do I have any people that's ever fished? Why why isn't Hitler just that good hunter? Right? If evolution is true, he was just the top of the food chain. He was pretty smart. And really, Nelson Mandela, what did he do? He just helped overpopulate the world a little bit. Apartheid's actually a good thing if you think about evolution. Because all it does is oppress the weak. And if you think about evolution, then that mean among us here, the races that we have here, there has to be a more superior race. There has to be a more intelligent race. If, if evolution is true and you look at dogs, aren't there better dogs? Don't you look at a certain kind of dog? You go, this pit bull is better than just chihuahua. There ain't no doubt in my mind. This pit bull is better than just, there just ain't even a question. Hello? This Rottweiler is better than this Great Dane. You know, that's what I would say. This Rottweiler would tear that thing. So why don't we do that in races? Do you know that in America, Planned Parenthood was founded out of people believing that? They were measuring African Americans' noses and Asian people's eyes. Do you know that not only Germany, but people did that even in America here? Planned Parenthood began to say that the lesser species of humans shouldn't even be allowed to reproduce. Planned Parenthood was based out of population control to control the poor people's right to have children. They were interviewing some college students. You can see this from Ray Comfort's video. They were all at, uh, interviewing college students, and this is what they asked them. You know what they said? If you had the chance to save your dog, the pet that you loved, or the neighbor you didn't know, what would you choose to save if you could save one in a burning building? You know what the majority of those college students said they would save? Their dog. Why? 
Because that's an animal I love. I don't love my neighbor. My, that's another animal I don't love. Do you know that they did, they did a survey with, with a, a man went out on the streets out in California for a fake survey? But he did it to test people's morality. He said, we want to now allow babies to be aborted up to 18 months. Remember that? Some of you saw it on YouTube. People were signing the petition. They weren't even thinking about it. There were people by the droves. Oh, yeah, I'll sign. I mean, and then he said, you know what? The baby's not viable because that's why they say you can kill a baby in the womb right now. It's not viable. It can't take care of itself. It can't survive out the womb. So he said, what would happen if we'd kill a baby up to 18 months, you know? Because it can't feed itself. It can't crawl yet. It's not viable. And people were saying, let's do it. How do you take, let me just close with this. How do you take a society like Germany and then they allow trains of Jewish people to go into a holocaust. Do you know that this happened within our generation? There's people alive that remember this because of that view right there. That view right there. Go down to the bottom, please, and let's end on a happy note. <laughs> I told you, this will, you'll never think the same again. When you go out of this world, when you go out of this uh, church today, you're going to be aware, if you weren't before, of the kind of worldview glasses you put on. That's why those of you who are single, you'll wait to have sex before you're married because you're going to have a biblical worldview on. If you walk out of here and you say, you know what? I don't believe in the Bible. I believe in humanism. Whatever is right for the human, human and whatever I can materially feel and bring pleasure to, that's what's right for me. You're going to walk out of here and have sex before marriage. If young people, if we tell them to be good for goodness sake, oh, be good for goodness sake, oh, I'm just going to ask you to not do this, not do that, they're going to put on the worldview of humanism, and the moment they don't want to be good for goodness sake, they're going to shoot up the block, they'll put bullets in the neighborhood that don't have a name on it, and take out young children on porches, because in their mind, they're the human that has the might, and they're right. If we teach them, just be good for goodness sake. But if we teach them, honor God, fear the Lord, put people above yourself, what will they say? I'm going to treat my neighbor as myself. I'm going to do unto them as I want done unto me. Here's the story of the world. We were created. We fell into sin. God sent the catastrophe of the ark. We were then sent into confusion in different cultures. The reason why we have different slanted eyes, different sized noses, is because at the Tower of Babel, we tried to build a tower to heaven out of our rebellion towards God, and God separated us by different languages. And when you isolate people groups and they have the same genetic code and they keep interbreeding, you get a, a nation like China where they all look like China. You get an aborigine that all looks like an aborigine. But now that we're living together, multi-races, we're going to go back probably to the color of Adam again, which was of the dirt, a brownish color. Do you understand? Inside of Adam was all the different genes, and we've split off into our different countries, and now we're coming back together again, if you think about it, like a melting pot. Creation, corruption, catastrophe, the confusion, that's where the cultures came from. Christ came down to die on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and now we're waiting for his kingdom to come. So what do you do in the meantime, saints? May his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Between Christ and the consummation, you and I should go around the world and tell people, live for Jesus. He created you with a purpose and a plan. His ways are better than 
in your ways, and it's time to live for them. Turn up, uh, go to, turn to your, <laughs> I'm all excited, everybody clapping. Everybody stand to your feet, please. Let's give the Lord a hand clap of praise. Amen. Band, would you come, please? Look at the scripture in closing, Hosea chapter 6, verse 1. Thank you for your patience. Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us what? Come on, let's say it again. Come, let us to the Lord. Come on, let's read that again. Come, let us return to the Lord. Are you going to do it? See, if you and I do it, now we're setting a cultural revolution in motion. You're going to do it, right? You're going to do it? See, he's setting a cultural revolution in motion. You're going to do it? If all of us here do it, what happens? We start turning the culture. We start turning. The church is that example. We do it here. Come, let's return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. If you go outside in the rain and you get wet, do you go up and scream at the rain? Oh, you stupid rain, you got me wet. If you had to walk 10 blocks downtown and it was raining outside, would you scream at the rain or would you do something else? What do you think you would grab to walk with you? An umbrella, right? It's always been raining evil in our world. Cain killed Abel. The people of Israel sacrificed their children to pagan gods. But whenever God's people put up the umbrella, the commands of God, God brought blessing. There was a time when America had up the umbrella. And literally, we were singing in the rain. We were able to say, look at this nation. Look at us, all the different nationalities. We're not perfect, but we have a great nation. The best Bible college, the best schools were Bible college. Harvard, Princeton, Yale. Still, all the other nations come to our schools here. We still to this day have the largest military economy. We've helped in wars of oppression like World War I, like World War II, the Korean War. We have helped people. Yes, we have. But this umbrella... It's now wearing pretty thin. Our young people are trading in their values. And that reign of wickedness that's always been a temptation to us is starting to become normal to us now. We're starting to become drenched and wet. And the Lord is punishing us. He's wounding us. He's spanking us, hoping that we'll return to Him. He's hoping today that when you go to work tomorrow, your co-worker is going to see the kind of life you live and say, I want what you have. That they're going to see what these teenagers are doing and is going to say, I want to live like this kind of a teenager and not this one doing gangs and drugs and all of that. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He's injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us. What does that talk about, the third day restoring us? What do you think that's a symbol of right there? What happened on the third day? Resurrection. Because of the resurrection, we get new life today. How many have gotten that new life? Amen. Verse 3. Just highlight it, please, brother, in closing. 
Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. I want to end with this today. How do you do it? Do you go to your workplace waving your Bible around? Here I am with my worldview. Take it or leave it. And you get fired, you know? No. How do you do it? You acknowledge God in all you do. That's how we used to do it. That's what football players were trying to do when they took a knee. They were trying to give glory back to God. They were trying to acknowledge Him. That's what parents were doing around dinner tables. Let's pray before we eat, kids. God, we thank you for this meal. We acknowledge you. Thank you for our family. See, that's what that does. Going out with your coworkers, acknowledging what you learned here this week. Hey, what do you do this week? Well, man, I went to the game, hung out with some friends. That's cool. I went to church, just learned about how to live a better life. Man, can I tell you about it? You see, you acknowledge God. Oh, what kind of music you like to listen to? What kind of family do you have? It doesn't matter, man, what conversation you're in. You can always acknowledge God. What are you doing for the holidays? Well, I'm going to get together with family, going to sing some songs about Jesus, teach my kids about why Jesus came to the earth. That's great. What are you doing on vacation? Well, I'm just going to get some rest. My wife and I are going to pray, get refreshed. Just going to hang out with God, let Him refresh us. That's cool. How long have you and your wife been married? Oh, we've been married eight years. God blessed us, man. Our kids are blessed. Just love living for the Lord. It's not always been easy, but God's been taking care of us. You know, what's your favorite sport? Oh, my favorite sport's basketball. God made me with the ability to play. I practice. I work at it, man. I love, I love telling my co-work, uh, my fellow students, uh, playmates about God. It doesn't matter. Whatever you're talking about, you can turn it to God. You acknowledge him, and then what does he do? He comes. You, he comes. He comes in your family. He comes with your friends. He comes on your job. Has anybody experienced the reign of God come when you start to acknowledge him? Amen. Altar workers, would you come? Let's pray. Thank you for your patience once again. Father, thank you today. Bless us as we move from this place. Help us now to walk out of here with your worldview. Help us to acknowledge you everywhere we go. Give us wisdom. God, there are some people here that work jobs that uh, they don't even want them to mention Jesus. But Lord, they can still acknowledge you in a way that people know why they do what they do. Lord, there's a way that every person here can do it. Maybe some families here are turned off by God. But there's a way that they can acknowledge you during this holiday season. I pray, Lord, that we'll do it. That we'll acknowledge you and we'll make your name great. In Jesus' name, can everybody say amen? Amen. Would you bless the Lord one more time? We love you, Jesus. It's all about him. Amen. Slap your neighbor high five and say, don't forget your glasses.